no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you shall eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds in the sky. They do not sow or reap. They gather nothing into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you more important than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single moment to your lifespan? Why are you anxious about clothes? Learn from the way the wildflowers grow. They do not work or spin, but I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was clothed like one of them. If God so clothes the grass of the field, which grows today and is thrown into the oven tomorrow, will he not much more provide for you, O oh, you of little faith? So do not worry and say, What are we to eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what are we to wear? All these things the pagans seek. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient for a day is its own evil. This is Medjinomics with a friend of Medjugorje. Back in 1990, we always had priests coming by. So many people in the United States and other states knew that lady, what she did in 1988 for three months. We often had mass in the field when these visiting priests came by. There was a documentary of men being shot in the field. And when I saw it, I said, this is a commercial. And the priest has a Eucharist, and it's in slow motion. And he goes to a little girl and gives her the Eucharist. And another little girl receives the Eucharist. It was beautiful. I wrote a script to it. We made a 30-second commercial out of it. At that time, we had 1,500 prayer groups, and they were active. We gave them a special meeting every month. And I wrote to them and says, we want to do a commercial nationwide, but I didn't want to go to ABC, NBC, CBS. So I told each prayer group to go to the local affiliates. I asked them to raise $2,000 to $2,500 a piece. And we sent them the commercial, and almost every one of the prayer groups had these on television. We had in one month... 25,000 commercials. We had our phone number to get a cassette back in those days about the Eucharist. We started getting bombarded from people across all of the United States, moved, hearts opened, conversion. But the biggest thing, priests are calling us. They said, what is going on? Because a commercial called to go to confession. The priests were saying, they have never seen the lines of confession of what they start seeing. Because you can't see it on the radio, what happens, the films has a priest 
And in this 30-second segment, the priest was moving in slow motion, and he gave the Eucharist to a little girl and to another one. And it's very beautiful and very powerful. So what you're about to hear, hundreds of thousands of people saw. Have you been away? Refresh with the sacrament of confession, because the moment of communion is the highest and most sacred moment of your life. This is the moment when the living God enters your heart. Our Lady said, June 2nd, 2012, Confess regularly. Receiving my Son in the Eucharist is the center of your life. You can do everything. The Protestants believe it's just simple. And it is just a symbol because they can't consecrate the Eucharist. It's in only the church that God established. Before Our Lady came, I was helping Mother Angelica, EW10. I met many famous priests, Father Pharisee. He was a Jesuit. He came over to the house often because they had so many people with them because they were like movie stars. Another one was Father Ken Roberts. He was very, very famous. He was booked for three years. His talks and his arguments for Catholicism was incredible because he was coming to EWTN. Father Pharisee and other priests would be coming over to their house. They would come for some rest. And we would swim together in our swimming pool and with my kids, and they loved to come over. That, that's been a while back, and you may not know that. Father Mitch Paquo, there still runs on him. I told Father Ken Roberts, one day he was swimming, we was talking about Medjugorje. I said, if you can find a way to go to this Medjugorje place, don't even call me. Book me, and I'll send you a check. I'll take my whole family. Within a month, the Blue Army had their own plane. So we booked that with them. My family and me went to Medjugorje with Father Ken Roberts. And it was a beautiful thing, very profound. Even before that, I was marketing Father Ken Roberts, all his tapes. That's back in 1986. But I was forming Caritas to promote Catholicism. And we became very, very close and traveled together. He wrote a book called Playboy to Priest. He was a flight attendant, and then he got called to the priesthood. He had traveled all over the world, had a lot of girlfriends, and everybody loved him. He was part of our family. He called my young son Candy Boy. When he came to our house, he always gave him candy, and he was looking for it. Father Roberts would have people out the door and the side doors. There was no seats in the church. He was in Birmingham, and I booked him on several churches every night. And I taped what his talks were. So there's mission nights going across Birmingham and Alabama. He was incredible in, in challenging those who are against the Catholic Church and those in the Catholic Church. Protestants would even come. He was like a movie star. After his talks, there'll be 50 people around him. So what you're going to hear, I ramp up 
challenging Protestants, Catholics, non-believers about the Eucharist. He gives the arguments, like an attorney defending Jesus Christ for those who don't accept him as Christians and yet don't believe the real presence of Jesus. This is a masterpiece. And he begins this, knocking down everything that would argue against the Eucharist. And then the, for the Protestants, listen to it, even preachers, they became Catholic. This is almost an hour, but he's going to start from the Bible, and what he's going to end with it is incredible. We've had this in our archives. I've got a lot of his talks. And before he died, he called me and my wife, please come see me. He was out of state from Alabama. Or maybe it was Kentucky, a place like that. He was so happy to see us. He died about a month after we saw him. A great man, a great priest. And if we had just 10 of them, we would have the churches overflowing. So follow his points, all his arguments of this masterpiece. Here is Father Roberts. Now, what shook me up a little bit when I came back from England, just after the Holy Father was here, I heard this survey that was done by the Gallup Poor and said that 90% of American Catholics liked the Pope, but 80% of you disagreed with him. Well, I've got news for you. You know, what kind of Catholics are you then? We're not, it's not an American church. It's not an English church. It's not a German church or a Polish church. It's a Catholic church. That means international, worldwide. It's not a democracy either. It's a kingdom. Jesus didn't say, upon this rock I will build my kingdom, my, my democracy. Upon this rock I will build my church, and to thee I will give the keys of the kingdom. And the kingdom has a king. Christ is that king. You don't, make, you don't tell the king what to do. And so I was amazed, even if you didn't disagree with him, if you, if you did, I thought that um, proportion was very really high. Till I realized that 50% of Catholics don't go to Mass in the United States. That's also in Harris Paul. But not even worse than that, 52% of Protestants don't. You see, this country claims to believe 95% believe in God, but only 47% worship Him. Think about that. 97% of the people in this country claim they believe in God. There's very few atheists here. See, some, I'd probably be 1% atheists, the others would be agnostics, that small percentage. People don't know. There are hardly any atheists in the United States. That means that practically everyone you meet in the street, stop anyone along the street, stop anyone you meet in Alabama, anyone in Missouri, anyone in Los Angeles, anyone anywhere, and say, do you believe in God? Ask any kid in school. And they're going to say yes. It would be a hard time to put to find an atheist. Yet they don't go to church or worship him. How would you like to be ignored? Think about it, even kids, teenagers. How would you like people to say, I, don't, I, lie. I know you're there, but I don't talk to you. How would you like to go home, husbands, and no one in your family talked to you? Everyone shunned you, gave you the cold shoulder. No one said, good evening, Dad. Hi, Dad. How are you, Dad? They just looked like you weren't there. How would you like that? It's called being ignored. 
How would your wives like it? How would mothers like it? How would your children like it? How do you like it, God? How do you like it, God, when they say they believe in you, but they ignore you? So just because we say we believe in God doesn't mean we, we worship him, does it? And that's a grave sin, one of the commandments. I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods before me. Thou shalt keep holy the Lord's day. What about the 52%, 53% that doesn't go to church? Except Christmas and Easter. Where do they worship God? They believe in him. If they don't worship him on Sunday, when do you think they talk to him? On Monday? When do you think these people worship this God they believe in? Whom they ignore. As you know, I work in Hollywood, doing Heart of the Nation. Those programs you see, uh, one of my programs is done here in Alabama, Catholic Beliefs and Practices. But the Heart of the Nation programs, the search I do down in Hollywood. I go down there once a month to take those shows. Spend a week a month in Los Angeles. And I work with the people in Hollywood, and many of them are Jewish. You know something? They always let me know they're Jewish. I was with a man, the director, the other day, and he was directing the mass for the TV. You know, I had to give him instructions on what shots to take. He said, you know, Father, I'm not a Christian, I'm a Jew. Well, I said, really? What synagogue do you go to? Well, he didn't go to the synagogue. Oh, so you don't go to the synagogue? He said, no. I said, do you read the Bible? No. Do you ever pray? No. I said, I notice you're reading bacon, too. I said, what makes you think you're a Jew? What makes you a Jew? Because you were born one? Do you worship a Jewish God? Do you read a Jewish Bible? Do you say Jewish prayers? What do you do that's Jewish? Except tell Jewish jokes. See, I would call that man a cultural Jew, wouldn't you? What about a cultural Catholic? See, 50% of Catholics in this country say they're Catholic, but they don't go to Mass. They don't receive the sacraments. They don't pray to their Catholic God. So what makes you Catholic then? And that's 50%. So I would, I'd imagine they would disagree with the Pope. What do you think? I'm sure they found something to disagree with him in. I'm surprised they even know what he said. But they're Catholic, like that Jew is Jewish. But what about the other 30%? They must go to church. Now I thought about that until I realized that not everybody who goes to church prays. Not everybody who goes to church has a relationship with God. See, it's possible to go to church and talk and not talk to God. It's possible even to say the prayers here tonight and not have prayed. It's what Mary's talking about at Medjugorje, the apparitions. She's telling them that they're not praying properly. If you only say prayers and your mind and heart is not turned to God, then you're saying prayers but you're not praying. It's possible to go to church and have a relationship with religion and still not pray still not know God and so 
I call those Catholics who do that habitual Catholics. I'm sure they would have a problem with God and with the Pope, don't you think? See, if you don't have a spiritual life, if you're not talking to God, if God isn't talking to you, if you don't have a relationship with the Lord, then of course you're going to have problems, any church would. And so <laughs> that group obviously has problems. That's the ones I call habitual Catholic. And somebody said last night, but you didn't mention the third group. The third group are the ones who are committed, dedicated. The ones who have a relationship with God. The ones who know Jesus Christ. You see, they don't have a, I'm not, they don't have a problem with what the Pope's teaching. Because they know he's listening to the Lord. He's teaching them what's in the Word. So most of the people that have problems, maybe they have a problem with God himself. Because they judge everything from a human perspective. And that reminds me of a scripture passage, one of my favorites, I like to quote from St. Paul. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16, St. Paul says, I no longer judge anything by a mere human standard. If at one time I so judge Christ, I no longer know him by that standard. He said, if I one time so judge Christ, what does he mean by that? See, when Paul, who was Saul, only knew Jesus as a man, then everything he said was human. He said, I, Christ didn't mean anything, he was just a man. See, that's why they have that picture of the very human Jesus there, to remind you. I was saying more about that on Friday, about the two natures of Christ, God and man. If you met Jesus, do you think you know he was God? See, we started backward. We came to know Jesus God and forget that he was a man. So much a man that people didn't believe he was God. That's why they crucified him. Because he hinted he was God. As soon as he hinted that, they were against him. Because he blasphemed. Because they couldn't see a divine. They only saw human. And it was religious people that killed him. Because they didn't see the divine. St. Paul was religious. St. Paul was never non-religious. Even when he was Saul, he was a Pharisee. He knew the Bible from cover to cover, except there wasn't a cover from cover then. It was scroll to scroll. He knew every word of the Bible. He had made a good fundamentalist. He could have quoted you every word of Scripture, and he still didn't know Christ. Because he judged it by human standards, not by divine. But once he met Christ and came to know him as God, that changed his life. And then he saw things not just by a human way, but a divine. And that applies to everything I teach or anybody else teaches about God. See, everything we do can be judged by a mere human standard. You know, anyone who came in here tonight without any faith, if you don't have faith, a Catholic faith, you don't know what we believe, you don't see what we believe from God's point of view, what we do here is very human. We get dressed up in funny clothes. I mean, we'd look silly walking around the street in these, wouldn't we? Now, I was at a mass one day, so when I went down, a little kid had seen me at a barbecue the day before, and I was wearing sports clothes because I was at a barbecue. So the next day, I'm all dressed up like this. He was in first grade. I was walking down the aisle preaching at the school was in uh, Kansas City. He said, don't I know you? I said, yes. 
He said, were you with my grandpa's yesterday? I said, yes. He said, I thought so. I didn't recognize you with your dress on. See, he was, reckon he was seeing it from a purely human point of view. From a purely human point of view, we're dressed in dresses. And that would make people laugh if they didn't know what we were doing. What are those guys dressed up in those funny clothes for? But they're not funny clothes, are they? They're priestly clothes. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't know our faith. And so anything we do, you know, people, non-Catholics make fun of lots of things Catholics do. All that ritual, they say, right? Well, we all have rituals, just a different kind of ritual, that's all. What about the ritual of walking down an aisle and accepting Jesus and crying your eyes out? Isn't that a ritual? It is if you only look at it from a human point of view. But it isn't if you see it from what God sees. If you can see human beings accepting Jesus Christ, then that's not funny either. Something's happening to those human beings that walk down the aisle and accept Christ. I don't laugh at Protestants who do that. So I hope Protestants don't laugh at us when God works in our lives in a different way, with a different ritual. So we can judge either one by a mere human standard. Pouring water over somebody's head. Looks like you're giving them a shampoo. We call it baptism. Protestants dunk you. That looks funny too. From a mere human point of view, when you half drown somebody, then tell them they're saved. But from what is it from God's point of view? Is there something divine happening there? In those ordinary simple things that humans say would, without faith are silly. So the most human of all things we do, which is the most divine, is what we do here tonight, called the Eucharist. But without faith, without faith in this Eucharist, judging it by a mere human standard is meaningless and it's boring unless you see what God sees. And that's why that verse in the Bible, what St. Paul says, is important to pretty much everything we do, not just to Catholics, but also to Protestants. Because we can all judge each other, and we can all laugh at each other because we don't understand each other. Because we, each one's going to judge the other by a human standard. And if we only judge by a human standard, we all look crazy. I remember I was in New Orleans one time doing a charismatic mass with the priest and he, this priest was with me we're all celebrating like we are tonight and the Monsignor looked at me in a very loud voice he said everybody was praising the Lord waving their arms singing in tongues doing this he said what are they doing I said they're singing in tongues Monsignor he said they're doing what I said they're singing in tongues he said what are they waving their arms for I said they're praising God he said well I hope there is a God otherwise we're a crazy bunch of uh, you know what <laughs> See, wouldn't it look crazy? I mean, imagine, you walk into an assembly of God or a Catholic charismatic prayer group or any charismatics and you see hundreds of people going like this. Now, from a human point of view, they look like they should be locked up. But you don't look at those things from a human point of view. What if they really are praising God? But that you'd have to see from a divine point of view. Now, I want to say that as an introduction tonight so we can open our minds to see what Catholics believe and why we believe it. There may be non-Catholics here tonight. I'm sure there must be in Alabama. You can't all be out there Catholics, can you? And so you came maybe out of curiosity. You may not believe what I believe, but at least know why I believe it. 
and say, well, I don't understand, I don't do it, I don't believe what he does, but at least I know why Catholics do. At least I know why I've learned something that way. And see that we too may have some truth after all. What I've been sharing the last few nights is based on this song by Donna. Donna, as I told you before, was a, a habitual Catholic. She was that middle category, the group that went to church out of habit. She was the kind of Catholic that would have got caught up on a Saturday if it was a holiday of obligation and said, well, this count for Sunday and Saturday. You know those kind of Catholics? Will this count for today and tomorrow, Father? Habitual Catholics. Not a relationship with God. And if you've ever said that, you know where you're at. If you've asked a priest, can you get do a two for one? What's your relationship with God? You be, be honest. You're trying to get out of it? You don't like the Mass? It's so bad you, can only make, you don't want to go twice? Think about it. There are a lot of Catholics like that, aren't there? So what's their relationship with the Lord? How do you think the Lord feels when he hears you ask it? Do you think he might say, am I that boring? Are you that far away from me that you couldn't bear to come back again tomorrow? Well, Donna was in that category. She admits it. But in 1979, John Paul II went to Ireland and she saw that little white figure among three million people, that little white shepherd. We talked about that last night. And his, his coat of arms was up in a big banner, totus tuus, totally yours. Not partially yours, totally yours. That's his motto. He wants to be totally to, to God's, not partially, not 90%, not 50-50, totally. We've got a Pope who is totally committed to God and to the church and to his people. And so as she was seeing him there, she had a conversion experience. She experienced the Holy Spirit. She experienced God. Jesus Christ became real at that moment in her life. Here she was, a big star. Like a little speck, she felt very insignificant. No one was getting her autograph that day. No one was noticing her in the crowd. Even though she was a big-time superstar, like Barbara Streisand. She was lost in that crowd of three million. She was a little face in the crowd. And so she sings that in her song to the Holy Father. Did you see my face in the crowd? And did you know that I loved you? And she goes on with her verse, in the second verse, she talks about how he preached justice and that love was the key that would turn it. And the last verse is about how she will follow him wherever he leads. But the chorus was the thing she got first. It was totus to us, totally yours, the rock, the lamb, the Lord, the man. And it's the words of the chorus that I've been preaching this week. I've been preaching this mission all year, since January. Totally yours. Totus tuus. So I want to be that tomorrow, Friday night, in St. Paul's, the cathedral. I want everybody from this diocese that comes to be totally, totally God's. Totally committed. Totally turn your life over. Surrender. Accept Christ. But be totally his. Not partially. Not just Sundays. But seven days a week. 24 hours a day, your whole life. Totus to it, totally yours. And so I've been going through that chorus 
the rock. We talked about that last night. Jesus said, if you build on sand, your house will crumble. But the man who builds on a rock, the wind and the rain will beat against it, but it will stand. We know that he made Peter the rock. You are a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. To thee I will give the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose upon earth will be loosed in heaven. And I told you that John Paul II is the 264th successor to St. Peter. Right? Anyone who wants to doubt that, go to your public library here in Birmingham, Alabama, where it's only 2% Catholic. Not like St. Louis, where, it's, where the Baptists are 2%. See, St. Louis, we're Catholic. Down here, you're the other way around. So go to a Baptist library in a Baptist city and look up a book called the Reference Library, The History of the Popes. It's in every public library, it should be, but doesn't order it. And it will give you every Pope from John Paul II back to Peter. 264 names in line. And in case they haven't got it in the library, they won't get it for you. You can get it from a Catholic library. <laughs> they name every, every Pope from John Paul II back to Peter. See, there's only one man on earth claiming to be the successor of Peter. There's one man on earth claiming that title. And he can trace himself back in an unbroken line just as Ronald Reagan can trace himself back to George Washington. Just as the Queen of England can trace herself back to the first King of England. We know that Ronald Reagan's the President of the United States. There may be a lot of false people who are crazy who think they're the head of the United States. But there's only one President. He's elected, he's the one. Till you kick him out. So there's only one head of the church, and the world knows that. There's only one man claiming on earth to be the head of the church, and claiming it for 2,000 years. John Paul II. So I spoke on that last night, the rock. And people that don't listen to that rock will crumble away, because they're building on sand. They're listening to false prophets. Tonight I said I was going to talk about the second word in the song, which is the Lamb. And tomorrow, Friday, will be the Lord and the Man, which will be about the two natures of Christ. And the Lamb tonight is to do with the Christ in the, the Eucharist, the Lamb. I was also sharing with you, with you about the different approaches Catholics have with fundamentalists. There's, see, there's two different approaches to the church. It's like two different cookbooks. You know, if you've got a, a Chinese cookbook, it's not a Mexican cookbook. If you try to mix Chinese and Mexican together, you'll have a horrible meal. It won't work out. You can't have Chinese-Mexican. Sweet and sour pork and burritos? <laughs> it's a different cook. It's a different menu. So too many Catholics who try to become fundamentalists will not stay Catholic. And if you do, you won't be a happy Catholic. And if you're a fundamentalist that doesn't believe in literal translation of the Bible, you won't be a happy fundamentalist. Because you're mixing your theologies. There's two different approaches. So a fundamentalist approach is that this book and this book alone is the Word of God. And that everything you need, everything you need, is in this book. And it's all written out there in English, in good King James English. 
And if it's not in there, and it doesn't mention it, then you mustn't believe it. And if it is in there, and it mentions it, that's what you've got to believe, just what it said. That's their approach. Well, it, and I've shown you this week that that approach doesn't work. There are many contradictions in the Bible, if you take it literally. Now, one of the things that amazed me, there's a new fundamentalist Bible out now, where they've marked all the passages in red. It's already lined, you know, underlined where you put the liner in. All the passages they want you to memorize. And the interesting thing, there's not one single lined line in the sixth chapter of John. I wonder why. Because the sixth chapter of John is all about the Eucharist. Six chapter of John, all that long chapter, read it when you get home. Read what Jesus says. What Jesus says. And there's not one single line underlined in this fundamentalist Bible. Why? You mean that's not the Bible? All those things Jesus said weren't important? I thought they had a full gospel. Why did they leave the whole sixth chapter un unlined? Look and see if they've unlined 1 Corinthians 11. And see what St. Paul said about the Eucharist. See if that's been lined with a liner. It isn't. Why? Because the Eucharist isn't important to them. It's so unimportant to them that they've they celebrate it rarely. And when they do, it's only symbolic. And yet Jesus said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have my life. Isn't it funny they don't take that unless literally? They took John 3, 5 literally. Everybody wants to quote John, unless you're born again. How come that unless counts and the unless you eat my body doesn't? I wouldn't say that's a full gospel. So you see there's two different approaches to this Bible. When I was sharing last night the arguments I had with the fundamentalists on the radio. I want to continue with that. I've already talked about the Immaculate Conception, showed you where that's in the Bible. That was one of the things he had a problem with. I've shown you that already from Scripture. See, one of the other problems, I've also shown you about purgatory. But you see, the thing is, they asked, he said, one of the problems he says to me was, where are these things in the Bible? That's what they're going to ask you, and they mean it sincerely. It doesn't mean when they ask you they're attacking you. They may genuinely want an answer, especially if that's their theology. See, look at it from the point of view of a fundamentalist. Put yourself inside their skin. I'm asking them to put themselves inside of ours. See, I studied fundamentalism in college. I majored in Protestant theology so that I could answer them. <laughs> I know every one of their arguments. I know every one of their, there's not one single thing they can ask me that I don't know the answer to. That's why I wrote a booklet called Father Roberts Answers Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> See, I know every one of the fundamentalist questions. There's nothing new. You better learn some new ones if you want to catch me. And one of the, the things they come up with, they say, where's the Pope in the Bible? Where's the Mass in the Bible? Where's the Immaculate Conception in the Bible? Where's the sacraments in the Bible? You know, I said to them, none of those words are in the Bible. Well, they think, see, see, he gave in, he's admitted it. That's right, they're not. Then my next question is to them, does every word have to be in the Bible? They say, of course, if it's not in the Bible, I don't believe it. If it is in the Bible, I believe it. So, great. 
So where is the Trinity in the Bible? I would challenge any minister in this town, in the whole state of Alabama, in the whole Bible South, show me where the word Trinity is in the Bible. There's no such word in the Bible, from beginning to end. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the words, there are three persons in one God. They're all one and the same God. Yet every one of us believes in the Trinity, except the Jehovah Witnesses. When I talked that to the gentleman who called on the phone, he said, why don't they believe in it? I said, because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> he said, well, where do we get it from? I said, from the same church that gave you the Immaculate Conception, the seven sacraments, the Mass, and the Pope. It was given to you by a council of the church. We talked about those last night. But something that really blows their mind, the word Bible is not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the word Bible. Isn't that strange? And they're always saying it's in the Bible. <laughs> See, it gets complicated, doesn't it? And if everybody who reads the Bible gets infallible truth without a teaching church, how come there are so many Bible religions? There's something for them to ask. What I'd like to do would be put, take a Church of Christ minister, a Pentecostal minister, a United Church of Christ minister, a Methodist minister, a Lutheran minister, and put them all together in a room with the Bible and see how much they agree on. If they're all taking it literally. If it was that simple, they'd already be one, wouldn't they? They wouldn't have separate churches, would they? So why are they in separate churches? Because they disagree what the Bible means. That's why they're separate. So if they can disagree, why can't we? We were here first. It's not that simple. So you see, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but the truth of the Trinity is. And the truth of that Trinity was taught by a council of the church 300 years after Christ died. And every Catholic and Protestant has accepted it, even though it's not literally stated in the Bible. And so the church, the church has even changed the day of the Lord. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to go to church on Sunday, does it? That's why the, the Unitarians don't believe in the Trinity, by the way. And that's also why the Seventh-day Adventists don't go on Saturday. Because it doesn't say the Lord's Day is on Sunday. So why do all the Protestants and the Pentecostals go on Sunday? Because the Catholic Church changed the day. It was the Church that changed the Lord's Day. It was the Church who gave us these teachings. Down through the ages, through the councils. But nothing the Church teaches is against the Bible. That's the point. Nothing the church teaches is against the word of God. Everything the church teaches can be substantiated by the Bible. So tonight I want to give you a teaching on the Mass. Because one of the things they're going to say is, well, where is the word Mass in the Bible? You won't find the word Mass in the Bible. It's right there with the Immaculate Conception. It's not there. But the truth of the Immaculate Conception is in the Bible. I showed you that the other night. And so is the truth of the Mass. The word matters, no. That's the name we give it to that truth, like the Trinity. The truth of the Trinity is in the Bible, not the name. The truth of the matters in the Bible, not the name. Because it contains many truths. So, I would say the different approach we have as Catholics, and with Catholics I would include Eastern Orthodox, Episcopalians, and many Lutherans, who believe in a sacramental church. 
For us, the Bible is not a jigsaw puzzle you memorize piece by piece, like a broken jigsaw puzzle. My experience with most people that go to Bible studies who are not Catholic, and some Catholics too, who take that approach, they get little tracks and they memorize certain passages. They probably have 200 verses they've memorized at most. They learn them so they can attack us. Like, call no man on earth, your father. Heard that one? You must have heard that down here. That's why they all call me brother. <laughs> so they memorize these little verses out of context. Let me answer that since I raised it, by the way. It says, call no man, no, not no priest. What do they call the man married to their mother if they don't call him father? So if we're breaking it, so are they. But they disregard what St. Paul says in the 1st Corinthians 4th chapter. St. Paul says, I am your father in Christ. St. Paul says that. Was he disregarding the words of Jesus? Paul says, I am your father in Christ. Paul didn't think he couldn't use the word, did he? So you see, it can't be that simple then, can it? It must be a little bit more complicated than people make out it to be. So our approach is not to take the Bible and learn broken pieces separated from each other. Our idea is to take a jigsaw puzzle and put it together. We understand the Bible as a whole, not its pieces. When I do a jigsaw puzzle, and say for the kids here too, so you get interested, you've probably done a jigsaw puzzle. I don't know what you do when you do one, I get all the straight pieces first. Get all my straight pieces, that's going to be easy. And I find the four corner pieces, especially if it's a square. <laughs> and I get my corner pieces in, then I attach my straight pieces, then I fill in some fillers, and as I fill it in, suddenly the picture comes alive. But when I look at the pieces, I can't see a picture properly. I just see colors and shapes. It's not until I put it in that suddenly that piece takes a whole different meaning when I place it there. So tonight, I want to talk about at least a couple of the corners of the jigsaw puzzle. I haven't got time to put all four corners in, but I'll let you know I could. And then the first corner, I want to put in the priesthood. The priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. You'll find that in the 12th chapter of Genesis, the 18th verse. It's prophetic. See, it's the first corner piece of our jigsaw puzzle. See, God has got all these pieces together. God knows where they all go. It takes a lifetime to put them all together. So you get, the, and the church is still putting them all together sometimes. That's why she keeps going and having councils and discovering new truths. Takes years and years to get this particular puzzle to, all together. And so in that first corner piece, it talks about a priest by the name of Melchizedek, who's also a king. Now, what's so strange about that? Because in the entire Old Testament, it's the only man in the whole Bible of the Old Testament who's king and a priest. That's unique. I don't think it's by an accident, it's by God's design. It names who he is, Melchizedek. What's he doing in this story? He comes out of nowhere and goes back there. He's only there in that one verse. What's he dragged into the story with Abraham for, before he's even Abraham? Let's go back to that verse. Melchizedek. King of Salem brought out bread and wine and being a priest of God Most High 
He blessed Abraham, Abraham with these words. And he's just a priestly blessing goes. What does all that mean? It's a prophetic verse, that's what it means. What does prophecy mean in the Bible? It means that something's placed there because it's going to have a greater meaning later on. It's what the prophets are there for. So that those prophecies can be fulfilled. And so what's prophetic about this? First of all, he's a king and a priest. That's unique. And he's king of Salem. Salem means peace. So he's king of peace. The town he was king of is Salem. You've probably seen Salem Lutheran Church. That means peace Lutheran. So he's king of this little tiny village called Salem. Later on, that little village will become a great big city known all over the world. It will become Jerusalem, city of peace. See, it's prophetic for Jesus Christ. And there's our first corner piece. He's a king of the one true God who's also a priest. And his name is Melchizedek. And he offers God a spotless sacrifice, an unbloody sacrifice of bread and wine. Now let's put a, new, a straight piece in there. You'll find that in the first chapter of Malachi, the prophet, the 11th verse. If I asked any fundamentalist who takes the Bible literally, if a prophet had his prophecy not fulfilled, what kind of prophet would he be? A false prophet. So would there be a, a, someone claiming to be a real prophet in the Bible who's false? Malachi is also in the Protestant Bible. And what does he prophesy? My name will be great among the Gentiles. For a spotless sacrifice will be offered from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. Now ask any of the other Christians in this town if they're offering sacrifice. They tell you they're not. Ask me any other Gentiles you know of that are offering sacrifice to God. A spotless one of bread and wine. And if they're not claiming to offer a sacrifice of bread and wine, then the prophecy of Malachi has not been fulfilled. And Malachi is a false prophet. What's he doing in the Bible? Take him out. Tear the page out. Another piece of the Bible. Another piece of the jigsaw puzzle. We'd also move to Hebrews. Or go to Psalm 110 before that. In Psalm 110, verse 4, it refers to the Messiah going back straight onto that corner piece. The Lord has sworn and he will not repent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In Hebrews, most fundamentalists have to quote the Catholics. Every high, in the fifth chapter, every high priest is taken from among men and made their representative before God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he is able to deal patiently with erring sinners, for he himself is beset by weakness, and so must make sin offerings for himself as well as for the people. One does not take this honor on his own initiative but only when called by God as Aaron was, 
Even Christ did not glorify himself with the office of high priest. He received it, what? The office of high priest. From the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. You are a priest forever, according to the order of... In Hebrews 5. Another piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Not just a preacher, he's a priest. He's taken on a priesthood. What did Melchizedek offer in sacrifice? Bread and... Was it a bloody sacrifice? No. Though therefore it was a sacrifice according to the prophet Malachi. Which must be offered continually from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof. An eternal sacrifice. Oh, the fundamentalists say to me when they read on in Hebrews, but it also says Jesus did it once and once only. But you Catholics are doing it every day. That's right, it's an eternal sacrifice. Then how can it be done again and again and again? They are videotaping me right now. Long after I've left Alabama, you can put that back on and play it. I won't be doing this all over again. But every time you play it, I will be present again. And every time you play it, all those who weren't present will be present again. And so each time that's played, what I'm doing now will be done again and again and again. But I'm not doing it again. I did it once. Christ did it once. And the priest is the videotape. So that those of us who weren't there can be present again and again and again and again at that one eternal sacrifice that fulfills the prophecy of Malachi in the first chapter of the 11th verse. Let's move on now to our story tonight, which is the Lamb. In the 14th chapter of Abraham, or the 22nd chapter of Abraham, in the 22nd chapter of Abraham is a testing of Abraham. You had the scripture just two Sundays ago for the Sunday liturgy, so you're, not, you're familiar with it. God says, give me your son, Abraham. And so God takes it, Abraham, with his son up a mountain. And here they are walking up a mountain. And who is carrying the wood of the sacrifice on his back? Isaac. See, there's a prophetic scene here, a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. It even mentions that Isaac is his only son. See, literally, he's not. He had another son called Ishmael, who was illegitimate. So he was only his only recognized son, Isaac. So it stipulates here, the only son carrying the wood of the sacrifice on his back up the hill. You think Jesus saw a God saw a picture of Jesus there? Who carried his cross to Calvary? When they get to the top of the hill, there's some prophetic words again. A great big piece of the jigsaw puzzle. Because Isaac, seeing the wood for the sacrifice, and seeing the altar, says to his father, where's the, where's the lamb? And Abraham answers prophetically, God himself will supply the... You'll find that in the 12th, 22nd chapter of Abraham. God himself will supply the lamb. And he will. Jesus is the lamb of God. Let's look at that lamb of God now because it's very important words in Jewish religion. There's no way you can understand the Christian church if you don't understand our Jewish background. That's why I started off with a Jewish story. See, we're, we're fulfilled Jews. If we don't know what the Jews did all those years, 
How are we going to understand what we're doing here? What did they do? And you'll find all that if you read Leviticus. Read the early chapters of Leviticus. And I would say read, start reading from the 12th chapter of, of uh, Exodus up through the 16th. Now, I haven't got time to read all that, but you can do that for homework. If I was given a complete mission for the whole week, I'd go through it bit by bit each night. But I'm trying to capsulize. In there you'll hear all about the Lamb of God. See, Moses tells God, God, or the God tells Moses, the kind of sacrifice he wants. Moses tells them to select a lamb, a male lamb, a lamb without blemish. And they're to sacrifice that lamb to the last drop of its blood. In fact, what they're going to do, they're going to string it up like that. Like Christ on the cross. When you look at a crucifix, with their arms out like the lamb like this. And the little lamb hangs over the order. Like Jesus on the cross. And the high priest will pierce the heart of the lamb. And the lamb would drip blood onto the altar to the last drop. Until water comes out. And then when the water comes out with the blood. Then the high priest will take the lamb down. And then they are to eat the body of the lamb in a holy meal. They don't just kill the lamb. They're not just washed clean in the blood of the lamb. They have to eat the lamb in a meal. Otherwise they haven't completed the sacrifice. That you'll find in Exodus. You'll find all the instructions about sacrifice in Leviticus. All dealing with the lamb. Well there are many chapters all through the Bible about the lamb. And the blood of the lamb. And the power of the blood of the lamb. And so how is Jesus introduced by John the Baptist? We read that in the first chapter of John, in the, in the beginning of where John in, introduces Christ. It's in the first chapter of John, the 29th verse. The next day, when John caught sight of Jesus coming toward him, he exclaimed, Look, there's the Lamb of God! Now he wasn't saying that to 20th century Alabamians or Missourians who said, Show me. He was saying it to Jews. What is the Lamb of God to a Jew? It's the Lamb, a male Lamb, without blemish, a man without sin, who they sacrifice at Passover, whose blood washes them clean to the last drop, whose body they eat in a holy meal. See, I've given you quite a bit of the jiggle puzzle. I'm just dealing with the lamb. There's a lot more about the mass besides the priest and the lamb. I've shown you, you have to have a priest and a victim. Christ is the priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so he offers himself at the Last Supper. Like, like a priest of Melchizedek. But he's doing it at the Passover, where the Jews offer the lamb. Where they eat the lamb in a holy meal. What do they do at that meal? The Jews also eat unleavened bread and drink a cup of wine. When they eat the bread, they remind themselves that when they were in the desert, they were fed from the bread of heaven. And they still do that. And they drink from a cup of wine to sign the covenant. See, if I had time and was going to go further, we're not, I could go into the other corners about the mill and about the covenant. Because there's a covenant here too. See, so we call those four corners, when we put it all together, the mass. The priest, the lamb, 
the covenant and the meal, all offered in sacrifice. That's what we call the mass. It's all in the Bible, isn't it? Everything we do here tonight is in the Bible. Everything. Why is it that the Protestants disregard evangelical Protestants who don't believe in the real presence? Why do they disregard the whole sixth chapter of John? It's the longest teaching of Jesus in the Bible. Read it when you go home, word for word, from beginning to end. And John writes that Bible passage, that chapter, that whole gospel, when he's an old, old man. I told you last night some theologians believe that he dictated it because he was too old to write. He was older than Father Pat and EWTN. And so he dictated it. They said, I don't care if he dictated it or what he did. It's in the Bible. It's part of the Gospels, the John. And it's at the end of the first century. There's 70 years of Christianity now. And Christians know their secret symbols. You know, whenever I see someone do that, I know they're not Baptists. I know they're Catholic. If they do it backwards, they're Eastern Orthodox. I know that. We recognize each other by that. We do that. And so the early Christians would have recognized each other by a fish. Because a fish stood for Jesus Christ. Whenever they heard fish, whenever they saw fish, it meant Jesus. And what is it happens in that miracle of the sixth chapter? What do they multiply? Bread and fish. Bread and fish is what? Jesus. Do you think it's by accident that the Apostle uses the exact words of the Mass in that miracle? He says, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying. And he multiplied it, not in his hands, in the hands of the Apostles. Do you think John did that by accident in that story? Do you think John was getting a message across? Do you think all those believers who've been going to Eucharist for 70 years didn't know what he meant? He wasn't writing a gospel to convert people. He was writing a gospel for believers. There's a lot of hidden mystery in John. That's why John's gospel is so sacramental. Because he lived the sacraments. It's John who talks about baptism. It's John who talks about having sins forgiven and reconciliation. It's John who talks about Eucharist. And see then there's that long monologue, which part of which we read tonight in the gospel. Where Jesus says, you've eaten this bread and you'll die. But the bread that I'm going to give you is my own flesh. And as soon as he started talking about eating his body and drinking his blood, they rebelled against him, like a lot of Catholics have done today. Even here in Alabama, there are Catholics who've left the church. You've left the church. You've walked out and gone somewhere else because you've turned your back on the Eucharist. I met a lady the other day in St. Louis, Italian. Used to be a devout Catholic. She goes to a non-denominational church now because she found Jesus. I said, where do you get the Eucharist from? She said, I must say I miss it. Miss it? You can't live without it. What do you mean you miss it? Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have my life. Read it in the Bible, in the King James Version, if you like. And then you tell me why they walked away, if it were only a symbol. And if it were only a symbol, why didn't Christ call them back? Why didn't he say, you misunderstood me? 
What do the Jews have? Didn't they, every Jew eat bread at Passover? Doesn't every Jew drink wine? What would be so fantastic about doing that then? You know, on one of my shows I was doing in Hollywood, I had a little obnoxious little girl one night. She was one of these little rich yuppie types from one of those rich schools. She was in the audience. And she started off, she said, I know that little wafer is supposed to be a symbol of Jesus, but it's awfully boring. I said, a symbol of Jesus? She said, you heard me. I said, a symbol of Jesus? She said, yes. I said, aren't you going to a Catholic school? She turned to the rest of the, she said, don't you think it's a symbol? They all agreed. I said, it's not a symbol, it is Jesus. It is Jesus. And she laughed. You see, they laughed in the gospel too. They found it a hard saying and walked away too. And Jesus didn't call them back. Jesus did let them go. And he turned to the apostles and said, Will you leave me also? He gave them an ultimatum. Read it. What does it mean? Why was Christ saying to Peter, Do you want to go too? Then Christ must have meant what he said. But you know why they can't accept it? Because they're judging it by a mere human judgment. Like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.16. They only see bread. They only see wine. So from a human point of view, that's all it is. But what does God see? After all, when you looked at Jesus, did you see God or did you see a man? How do you know he's God? Because of a dump iron standard, not a human. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to thee. Bread and wine don't reveal it to you. Faith does. Faith does. It's amazing how we pick and choose. You ask the Jews, do you believe in a God, an all-powerful God? Yes. Do you believe God opened up the Red Sea? Yes. Do you have any problem with that? No, because he's great God. God could open up the sea. God could open up the Atlantic if he wanted to. You really believe that? Yes. Do you believe God may come water out of a rock? Yes. Do you believe God gave you pancakes in the desert? Yes. Do you believe he fed you there for 40 years? Yes. Why do you believe that pancakes came down from heaven? There was no pancake house there. How do you think they got all that food every year for 40 days? 40 years! Nobody had any problems with that. Nobody questions that. Say, why? Because he was a great God. Our God's God. Then say, well, do you believe God became a man? Well, they have a problem with that. That's why they stayed Jews. They couldn't accept it. Their faith didn't go that far. They wouldn't let God love them that much. And so you say to people that accepted Jesus Christ, we share with all our Protestant brothers and sisters, everybody in Alabama, everybody out there, the Pentecostals, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Baptists, the Seventh-day Adventists, all of us believe that Jesus is Lord. Let's say amen to that. Do we have any problems with that? Then if God can become man, why can't he become bread? And why can't they accept it? They wouldn't let him love him that much. Because he said so. He said, this is my body, this is my blood. He said, unless you eat my body, unless you drink my blood, you cannot have my life. What's the big deal then? What's the problem if he's God? Stop picking and choosing with the Bible. If you're going to have the Bible, take the whole Bible. Not part of the Bible. If you're going to have the Bible, just listen to what Jesus says as well as what Paul says. And what does Paul say? In 1 Corinthians 11, St. Paul says, 
Is not the bread we bless the body of Christ? Is not the cup we bless the blood of Christ? So let a man come and eat of this bread and drink from this cup, but he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself. How could you get damnation from eating bread? That would be a hard God. You're going to damn you because you ate a piece of bread? Could you drink some wine if you were lucky? He said, he that eats this bread and drinks this cup eats and drinks damnation to himself because he has not recognized the body and blood of Christ. That's St. Paul, not Pope Paul. That's the Bible, not canon law. So how do evangelicals answer that one? Have you underlined that with your liner? Is not the bread we bless the body of Christ? Is not the cup we bless the blood of Christ? So let a man come and a woman and eat of this bread and drink from this cup, but he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself because he has not recognized the body and blood of Christ. And it's all prophesied in the Old Testament starting with that whole story of Melchizedek in Genesis 14. The priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, who offered bread and wine. The prophet Malachi, 1, 10, 11. Psalm 110, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5. See, I can quote the Bible too. See, see there's more than one way of looking at the Bible then, isn't there? And if we Catholics may be, may be right about this, we might be right about some other things you misunderstood. I wish I had more time to teach you everything. Father Ken Roberts was dynamic. People converted. People at his talks came into the church. I brought Protestants. They loved him. But just like it always is, somebody like him, so powerful, he was silenced. You know what happened? His bishop made him cancel his whole schedule of three years of talks and sent him to be underneath the priest in another church. It was a large church. He was obedient, and he had mass. The church had three masses on Sunday and on Saturday. And everybody stopped going to the other masses. They always went to Father Ken's mass. And the other priest got jealous. And he was not allowed to do public masses anymore. That's what happens to saints. His persecution was horrible. He was so hurt. David made accusations against him. And he ended up where we went to see a retirement home for priests. He was so happy to see us. And we were so happy to see him. And I'm going to be so happy to see him in heaven. This is a great man. And what you just heard, what he just said, is worthy for you to listen to again. Your children, your friends, make copy of it. Spread it. I pray to him every night for years. I suggest you do the same. We wish you a lady 
We love you. Good night. This ends the Medjinomics broadcast with a friend of Medjugorje. These broadcasts are available as CDs, which are sent directly to your doorstep on a monthly subscription. For information, contact Caritas in the U.S. at 205-672-2000.